Mom to Mom podcast. We're three generations of moms who've experienced nearly every season of motherhood. Of course, we don't have all the answers, but you can be sure that we'll always point you to the one who does. We're pouring a cup of coffee and we're chatting motherhood today. Pull up a chair. We're really glad you're here. first start out by saying that this is an episode of the podcast that is not for small ears. What we're going to talk about today can and and should be discussed with your children. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of what we're going to be discussing. But we'd encourage you to listen in by yourself in order to feel equipped and prepared for a one-on-one conversation with your kids. We're going to be using some key terms and perhaps even some words that might be deemed graphic to some, and we'd hate to inadvertently introduce your kids to them. So if your kids are around, I'd encourage you to hit pause on your listening device and either head on over to another room to finish the episode or just come at it when you have a few free kid moments. With that being said, we're talking about body changes and the birds and the bees today. Two potentially very awkward speed bumps in this journey of parenting, or so I'm told. My husband and I came from two completely different backgrounds for handling the delicate topics of hormones and body changes, sexuality and purity. So when we were faced with parenting in this really hypersexualized society, we knew that we had to find some common ground and face the task together. We determined really early on that we wanted to be proactive in this area of parenting rather than reactive because we wanted to be the first ones to introduce our children to certain topics in order that our kids could learn the true worth and value of sexuality according to scripture instead of you know, the world's fractured view of it. It was in our way of thinking that it would be best done through an ongoing conversation, not just a one-and-done talk. On top of just the clinical what and where of sex ed, we knew that we wanted to help our kids develop a biblical view of their bodies. We wanted to teach them that hormones and feelings aren't bad, they're not sinful, but they're God-designed. And we wanted to help them ward off any unhealthy notions that sex was dirty or wrong. We wanted to paint sex as beautifully ordained by God for husband and wife. In encouraging them towards purity, we knew that we didn't just want to press for physical abstinence. Because while chastity is good, it's really only just a very small part of what real purity is before God. We wanted to help our kids Um, by leading them towards emotional purity as well. So today I'm joined with my mentors, Kate Battistelli and September McCarthy, to talk about having the talk. So ladies, science shows that kids are reaching sexual maturity at far younger ages than in recent history. So with that in mind, how early do you think is too early to start having conversations about, say, body changes, to prepare our kids for what's ahead? And specifically, do you have any any tips for how to approach those conversations? You know, Jamie, I really think it's on a need-to-know basis. It depends on the child and the questions that they're asking. Now, my daughter was an only child, and she was raised 
back in the 90s and the 2000s when things weren't quite as bad as they are now. I, I, you know, we didn't have all the social media, all the craziness that's going on today. And I just don't believe that we need to be in any rush to expose them to all the ugly that's in the world. Kids will be adults far longer than they're going to be children. I'm a big believer in letting them be kids as long as we possibly can. <laughs> and I believe it's up to us as parents to be mindful of what we allow in our homes in terms of media, the movies, the TV shows, even the news that we watch. There is a lot of sex out there and the, and the enemy is out there waging a battle. He is out there for our children's hearts and minds and he's not playing around. His goal is to steal, kill and destroy a generation and we can see by what's going on that he is succeeding wildly. So the earlier that you begin with your children, starting to explain these things, the better, because the struggle's only gonna intensify as they get older. I think a lot of our decisions are based on our child's level of maturity, their critical thinking ability, and their personal commitment to holiness. And, and like you were saying, you know, it, it's, it's the, their commitment to holiness and purity. And that's really more what I, what I wanted to focus on with my daughter was teaching her about it, that emotional purity, just as much as physical purity. That's where I was trying to, to focus with her was explaining those things to her and, and, and her keeping her mind pure. If your mind is pure and you're, you're focusing your mind and your thoughts on those things, your body's going to follow. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's just important. If we're not exposing them to all the, the sexuality that's, that's out in the world, if we're not bringing that into our homes with R rated movies and all that kind of stuff, then, then it's just, it's not going to be in, in their, in their thoughts. And, if they bring up a question, we need to talk to them about it. We need to be honest and explain things to them, but we just need to help them maintain their innocence as long as we can. It's hard, but it's not impossible. Mm, so good. September, what about you? Kate, I love that um, quote. It's a need to know basis. I, I feel the same way. I feel like um, in our home, incremental conversations was very key as parents, you know, we can learn to watch for social and physical cues that will direct us in the timing of our conversations. I do not feel, you know, that our kids need to have full conversations and full disclosure about sex and purity all at one time. I feel like it's an incremental process. You know, we have three boys, seven girls, we've had our share of timely talks, but over the years, those talks have turned into daily listening and sharing and observing. And I think the key word there is really daily, um, not a one-time fit all the topics in um, and hope they remember, retain, and will come to me with questions, which I think is kind of a standard process in, in a lot of homes. I've, I mean, that's how I was raised. That's how a lot of my friends uh, relay their um, sexual conversations and purity conversations in their home, that it was a one-time fit everything into one topic and just trust that if we have a question, we're going to go to our parents. And um, so for us, it's an incremental um, daily conversation. And I feel like when we prepare our kids that way, we're creating what I like to call a trust and talk relationship. I always say, you know, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to trust that you'll come to me. And eventually they trust me so much when they do have a really awkward question, they don't hesitate to come to me. When my daughters do begin to ask questions, you know, I listen, I, and I tell them why their bodies are changing and what may happen soon, or maybe even not so soon. 
Um, but those social cues and those physical cues is for us as parents, it's really important for us to pay attention to those things. When we see that this might be coming or their bodies are changing or their emotions are off, you know, to have the talk before something happens where they're maybe not comfortable talking about it. And when my daughter's a private, another social cue that I watch for is when they're, they're kind of withdrawing and they, um, and I know that they want to talk about something. I just ask them, you know, I say, is there something you want to talk about? Is something happening that you're feeling off about? Why are you crying so much? Or do you know why you're crying? Is something wrong? Uh, we can't just expect them to know what's going on. This is new. This is, um, confusing. So I feel like asking questions is, um, really important. So I approach this as a celebration and a responsibility. I tell my kids that all of the changes God has for our bodies are preparing us for adulthood and the plan that he has for us. And then I also tell them that it comes with responsibility. So we do not just discuss sexual maturity, the changes in our bodies, but I also take this approach with them of taking care of our bodies and not allowing shame to be part of that plan. Mm. That was the go-to when I was growing up to just have the one simple conversation and, you know, assume that it was all taken care of and zipped up tight. But I think those days are long past. The only thing I'd add to that is to just know that if you are embarrassed or uncomfortable, you're going to teach them to be embarrassed or uncomfortable. You really set the tone for how these conversations will go. And, and like September and Kate, I think, you know, an ongoing conversation is best. And then, you know, when my kids reach about eight, nine or 10, depending upon, you know, that particular child, I start maybe having some more pointed conversations with them about body changes, telling them what to expect, introducing them to maybe some tools of adolescence that they'll need, like, you know, razors and shaving cream, deodorant, even personal hygiene products, feminine hygiene products. Um, because I think it's right around that time that, you know, baby steps begin to happen in their bodies of, of small little changes. And I want them to feel prepared before they actually need the information. So it doesn't come as a shock or a surprise. I heard a pastor say once that moms should choose their words really wisely when talking to their babies and their tots during, let's say, like a diaper change implying that foundational ideas about sex and sexuality are formed even then. And I'm curious, ladies, do you agree with this? And if so, do you think that there are some specific things a mom of preschoolers can do or say to set the stage for future conversations? Or is sexuality even worth considering at that age? I know that words have power, so he might be right. And I think it's important to use correct words for their body parts rather than the silly words we sometimes resort to. You know, predators often use pet names for body parts to try to groom their victims. So don't do that. I, I mean, I think we need to really use the right words and teach our children what the right words are for those body parts. And I think that moms of preschoolers can respect their child's bodies by teaching them that no one has permission to touch them, not just strangers, but even family members. Most of the crimes against children are not committed by strangers, even though we think, you know, stranger danger and all of that. And that's important to teach, but it's typically not strangers that commit those crimes, but it's the people the children feel comfortably with, typically family members, friends, and neighbors. Children need to know it's not okay for anyone to touch them in an inappropriate way, and they should feel free to tell mom or dad if someone does. And don't 
force your kids to hug someone if they don't want to. Your child needs to have a sense of ownership to some degree over his or her own body and not feel like they have to kiss or cuddle someone when they don't want to. Just let that person know, you know, she'll hug you when she's comfortable. It lets the child know they aren't in trouble for saying no to an adult. And oftentimes I think a kid just has, they have that innate sense. If they're not comfortable with somebody coming and cuddling or wanting to hug them, you know, children, they have that, that, that thing that just when they're, when they just are not comfortable, they don't want that person hugging or touching them, just let them feel comfortable and safe saying no. And I think we really need to respect that in a child when they're little. I think it's okay to let, and to let them know that they can say no, that it's okay. Because if they can say no with us when we're right there, then they can feel comfortable saying no when we're not there. It's, we've got to be able to do that. Absolutely, Kate. I could not have said that any better. I completely agree. And I think even going a, a step further and giving them some other options to show affection or or that they care about this other person, maybe an extended family member, you know, brainstorming with them ways that they can, you know, give a high five or shake hands or maybe do a special fist bump or something that that affection can be still shown. But the power to um, limit physical affection is within their control and that saying no to that is not wrong or naughty. I think it's kind of natural for babies and toddlers to grab at their diaper area out of curiosity. And if we as moms overreact or make a big deal about it, they grow to think that those areas are naughty or dirty. Again, we we kind of set the tone. But if we answer them calmly and maybe just redirect them calmly, we don't draw any unnecessary attention to their curiosity and mark it with shame. So I I kind of think when that pastor was was talking about that. That's what where my mind went to. I also think, like Kate said, it's good to communicate with correct terminology and really establish correct gender roles using specific words of body parts to show how boys and girls are different. And along with that, I think it's really okay to model for them appropriate physical relationships with your spouse. It's it's okay that your preschooler sees you be physically affectionate with your spouse, you know, holding hands, hugging, maybe even kissing, because I think this intentionally sets a very important boundary that that kind of physical affection happens and should happen in the safety of a monogamous marriage relationship between a man and a woman. This is the age to begin setting that tone and um, introducing them to those kinds of boundaries. And you can speak volumes in modeling without ever actually saying a word. Imagine the world change that would take place if we moms did the knee-bending work of prayer for our homes. If we spent just as much time praying as we do providing perfect childhoods, perfect days, perfect dinners. Our kids need perfection, that's true but it won't ever be found in us. That's a gift only Jesus can lavish on them. If Kate, September, and I could encourage you in just one thing, it would be prayer. Nothing will be more powerful in the life of your kids and in your relationship with them than bringing them to the throne of the all-powerful one who can move heaven and earth on their behalf. 
To help direct your thoughts to specific prayer points found in Scripture, we've put together a month-long series of prayer cards called 30 Days of Prayer for My Child. Each card contains a prayer theme, a verse that correlates with that theme, and a brief sample prayer to help you call upon God to be faithful to His Word in light of your kids. To grab a set of your own, head to September and Co. Shop on Etsy. Pray for your kids today, because if you're not praying for them, who will be? So how can a mom combat the world's messages of sex and purity? You know, we've talked at length in episode 23 about the far-reaching effects of exposure to porn in our kids' lives. But what about just general misinformation or twisting of truth when it comes to sex and sexuality? How can a mom be proactive when it seems like her kids are getting conflicting messages at every turn? You know, I think a mom's best bet is to try to infuse scripture as much as possible and truth. There is such a spiritual battle being waged for our children's hearts and minds. It is not easy to raise a child today, according to biblical standards, and it's getting harder by the day. And that's in every area, but particularly in this area, as the lines have been blurred, even between what is male and what is female, that's being blurred totally today. It's harder and harder for parents to buck the crowd and go against society and maintain their Christian witness. So the earlier you begin, the better, because it only gets harder the older that they get. We have to speak truth and we have to tell our children the lies that they're going to hear so that they can balance those lies against the truth that scripture teaches. Ultimately, our children have free will, just like we do, and they will make their own choices. But our job as parents is to teach them with love and compassion that there's a lot of error that's being taught as truth. And it's going to take critical thinking and a personal commitment to holiness to combat it. So it's really up to us, I think, to just teach the truth and let them as they grow, they're going to have to just discern what's truth, what's error, and what are they going to choose to believe. Right. I don't think I I could say that any better. I think that critical thinking aspect is a huge component. Um, You know, we have adult children and now I have three girls between 19 and 23. And um, that critical thinking factor is so vital in those stages because you're not going to be with your adult children where they are in situations where they have to make those decisions or they're being exposed to something. So um, thinking ahead, even though it's hard, if you have younger children, you know, that element right now is super important to infuse into them um, when they're young. But I 100% believe this is tied to what your worldview is in your home. Like what your worldview is really affects how you think. Um, And I, and that, that goes into the critical thinking we tell our children in our home that sex is not just the act of sex because that is what the world tells them. And that is what they're going to hear. And that is a very self centered message. And that is what they will hear as they grow, which is why more and more couples are not getting married. The world has shown them that if you can have the worldview of sexual pleasure without a selfless commitment to marriage, then why get married at all? And so therefore that leads to a worldview on what sexuality is and how you can um, have what you want without a commitment. So showing our children the commitment to marriage and one person in intimacy 
in a very selfless way is a proactive way in your home to combat this message. It's, it sounds very um, broad, but it's very real. And proactive means you compare and contrast. And when we do this in our home, we don't compare to other people, but to our own choices. So if we tell our children, you know, if you make this choice, what happens? If you make this choice, what happens? And that's where that critical thinking training comes in. Um, we do a lot of this with our parenting because when it comes to sexual purity, it's going to require conviction, like you said, Kate, and the ability for our children to use, like you said, again, critical thinking beyond common sense and what is right and wrong. Because we all know, all of us know listening, that hormones are so strong. I mean, we know this as, as moms, as women. And if our kids are retaining sexual purity as an act, just that act to save for marriage and not just as a purity to protect their minds and their bodies and their words and those they spend company with, um, then they will fail. Like it, it is a, a view that they have to have outside of what they're feeling, that self-centered feeling that hormones can, can give us. Um, and we want that we want our kids to know the difference between purity and saving sex for marriage, because there is a difference there. So some very practical things, um, we've limited some of their social media and internet exposure. You know, where does a worldview come in? Movies, what they're reading, even some Christian fiction is laced with um, sexuality that is outside of some of the biblical models. Um, peer talk, what are their friends talking about? Are their friends talking about sex as an act or are they talking about it in the wholesome way that is for marriage and what purity is? Um, one big thing I do want to talk about, and this is a huge thing in our home, is that there are a lot of voices and influences in our kids' lives that we may not even think about. Family members, older siblings, friends, even at youth group, um, youth group leaders, um, of course, social media, movies, books that they're reading, conversations. Not all of those voices are bad, but I feel like it's important for us as parents to make sure that our voice is the longest and the loudest and the strongest. Like this is the voice that they hear. And I just want to be proactive in my home by showing our children the outcome of belittling sex and purity. Because when you belittle sex and make it a, an act, um, then you begin to change your worldview. And just recently in our home, very practically, my, one of my older girls came to me with some questions. You know, she's in that critical thinking stage. And there's a um, really good friend of ours um, here on the podcast that we've interviewed before. And she's written books on this, you know, and her stages of those young college age years and her trying to discover what sexuality was to her and what it meant and purity, even though she was raised in a very strong Christian home, she wrote a book on this. And I told my daughter, I've prepared you the best I can. I've taught you, you know, the Bible, you have a biblical worldview, but I would encourage you to read this person's book because I trust this author and she's coming at it. So if you're in a position with kids, even older, and you're just at a loss as to what to do, you know, find those really good resources. Don't be afraid to put those good, strong, wholesome voices into your kids' hands, because at that age, they need to hear sometimes from someone else. Um, so that's what we've done in our home. And that's exactly why these women are my mentors. I'm just sitting here and I, I'm at a loss for words. What sage wisdom. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, 
I guess the only thing I would add is to set your kids up for victory in the realm of sexual temptation and not defeat by, like we've said again and again, keeping the communication lines open, by not shaming them when they have a question, by not shaming them when they slip up. Obviously, you want to address it. You want to bring them towards restoration and repentance, but um, no one no one's mind or heart was ever moved through a lens of shame. So um, definitely address cultural trends as well. Listen, you can stick your head in the sand and pretend that your child won't ever come up with certain terms or certain perversions of sex, but your denial or tight lip will only force them to seek information elsewhere. So like we've said on the podcast before, you cannot parent in the time you wish you were parenting in. You have to parent in this day and age, right here, right now. And as uncomfortable as that is, you have to do it. Your kids need you to do it. The other thing is, and we'll get into this uh, in a little bit when we're talking more about purity, but I would say also be mindful of your own purity and your own modesty. You know, um, I've, I've talked before about my desire to be attractive when I come to bed at night and to wear pajamas that are attractive to my husband. I'm not talking about lingerie, but just, I don't want to be rolling up in bed in my college sweatshirt and, you know, my, my sweatpants, because I, I feel like I love him enough and value our relationship and value that space enough to put a little care, have a little effort into it. And so I dress nicely, but I also have to be mindful of the fact that I have four sons and they don't need to see me walking around in something that might be a little see-through or a little tight or a little this or that. And so in the morning, I'm mindful to either change or put on a robe. So I think modeling that purity, modeling personal modesty can go a long way too. You can't expect them to behave any differently than you do. With that, what is your concrete go-to answer, ladies, for the first time your child comes to you and asks what sex is? Obviously, that's kind of a gross generality, but is there a response that is kind of your go-to? And is that response different for your boys versus your girls? Well, since I only had a girl, what I did was I just let her know that it it is a beautiful God-created expression of love between a husband and a wife for the purpose of expressing love and affection. And sometimes, if God wills, it results in children. It's an amazing gift reserved for marriage. And, you know, I just always felt, I just believe that you need to be honest. Depending on the child's age, tell them what it is. If they're old enough for a biological explanation, then explain it to them. It just, again, it's on a need to know basis. It depends on their age and their maturity level. You explain to them, you know, just what they can handle. It totally depends on the child and what they're really asking. When they're 11, it's very different than when they're 16. By the time they're 16, they probably already know. So it just really depends on your child and you know your child better than anybody. So judge it by that. But it, you just need to let them know that it is a beautiful, like you said at the beginning, Jamie, it's, a, it's an expression between a, a husband and a wife during marriage. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And I think I kind of messed that up the first time around when I was um, having conversations with my daughter. I think I was really 
um, good about explaining the mechanics and the biology of sex, but I forgot the piece about just the sheer enjoyment and pleasure that God designed it to be for a husband and wife. And I think that that really confused her later on because she equated sex, the actual act, with when you want to have a baby. And, and that, you know, it doesn't make sense to us because we understand the full picture, but in, at her age at, you know, eight, nine or 10, um, that was very confusing to her because I left out the critical piece of, yes, it is enjoyable. It is a pleasurable thing in the confines of this monogamous marriage relationship. So, yeah, I've had a lot of, a lot of kids ask me this question. Um, and, uh, sometimes when kids are little, they don't use the word sex. They don't say what is sex. They say, um, what are those animals doing? Or what are people talking about when they say, or, um, how did that person have a baby if they're not married? Um, so, you know, sometimes that question comes in a different format, but I have a very short answer for every single age. And I never include the reproduction part of the element to sex in my answer, because then that takes me into having to explain reproduction. And I don't want to cover that until I'm ready to do that because to me, that's a whole nother conversation. So this is my answer. If you want to write it down, it's very short. <laughs> it's very concise. It's basically, we say, um, it is a very special and private time between a man and wife because I want to make it special. I want them to know it's private and I want them to know it's between a man and a wife. And then if they want to ask me more questions, you know, I go from there. Um, it's, I don't, I try not to say, um, that people, you know, because I want them to know it's between man and wife or supposed to be. Um, and then if they ask questions like, well, they're not married, then that gives me a, that gives me an opportunity to talk about how sex is intended for marriage. Um, I think, I feel like that kind of answer in our home has been so good for the very young. They just seem okay with it. I, you know, when I say it's a very special and private time between man and wife. Okay. <laughs> and then they just go on and then I can kind of gauge where they are. And then, um, I move into longer answers as they're older, you know, but usually that question does come in different formats when they're younger. And by the time they're older, they're not asking what is sex anymore. They're saying, okay, so now I really want to know how is a baby born? How come, you know, and then that's a whole new conversation, more clinical. Um, so that's my answer. Yeah, that's great. Like not, not giving more information that is necessary, but answering the question, if they're old enough to ask it, I feel like they're old enough to get an answer, but base your answer off of the question that they're actually voicing. So as a woman who grew up in the purity culture of the late 90s, that, that culture that's been linked to so much shame and spiritual scars, I'm wondering what you think the alternative is. Obviously, purity is very important to God. But how can we communicate that importance without giving it so much weight that we mar their identity in Christ or even misrepresent what purity actually means? I love this particular scripture from Proverbs 22, 11, and it says, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. 
I remember writing my daughter's name in the Bible next to that scripture when she was young because I wanted to mark it and remember those words and tuck them in my heart. The only way our children are going to maintain or desire purity in their bodies is to want a pure heart, a heart that desires holiness, that desires him above all. And I wanted to help my daughter cultivate a relationship with Christ that put him at the forefront, where he was all in all, where anything else wouldn't be able to pull her over into sin. Cultivating a pure heart was always my goal because a pure heart would spill over into the desire for purity in every area. I think so many people think that sexual purity equals virginity, but virginity is just a physical state of being. It's it's a form of purity for sure, but it's not the only form of purity because I as a married woman can be pure too in my thoughts, in what I watch, in what I read, in what I listen to. We have to understand that purity is a heart issue. And and quite frankly, a teen can be physically pure, like the physical act of virginity, but still be quite lustful. I think we do well to focus on capturing our kids' hearts and helping them to see purity in light of their relationship with God. So one of the byproducts of that purity culture that I came out of in the 90s is that it inadvertently diminished the redemptive work of Christ. I don't think that was its goal, but that's what happened. It painted anyone who had had premarital sex as damaged goods, as if they couldn't be whole or clean on their wedding day. I remember hearing um, one pastor use a rose as an object lesson in his purity talk to our youth group. And he, he had this rose and it was perfect. It was beautiful. And he passed it around and he told everybody to touch the petals as it passed them, touch the petals, sniff it, smell it. Um, And when the rose finally came back to him at the front, what was left was, you know, all the, the petals were bruised and they were wilted, you know, if there were petals at all, you know, it was mostly just an ugly stem. And he said, Um, Now, who would want this rose? Implying that a person who had a sexual past is unlovely and unlovable. But the truth is, is that we're all broken people. We're all sinners. And, And when the question is posed, who would want this rose? Jesus declares, I do. I want that rose. I love that rose. So when we overemphasize sexual purity, we just diminish a person's worth and value of in Christ. Purity is important. Absolutely. Scripture speaks again and again about having a pure and righteous life, but we cannot overemphasize sexual purity, making it only about the act. We'd be better served. We're, we're better serving our kids if we remember that it really is a heart issue. How do you navigate the awkward teen years when hormones are raging and kids begin to form, you know, a natural attraction to those of the opposite sex? What boundaries, if any, do you put on that attraction or that physical interaction between teens? Well, if we've been raising them all along to respect and value purity and holiness, it will be less of a problem. Um, When our daughter turned 13, my husband took her out on her first date and gave her a beautiful purity ring, a 14 karat gold ring that looked like a small, a little gift wrapped heart. 
and he spoke to her about the importance of keeping herself pure until marriage and prayed a prayer of blessing over her. And he'd written up a commitment for her to sign, which was her promise to him to remain pure until she got married. Then he asked her to sign the agreement, which she willingly did. And he put the ring on her finger and explained to her how on the day she got married, she could present her ring to her husband as a symbol of her love and the commitment she made to wait for him. And until that day, her heart would remain securely gift wrapped, waiting for her husband. And she wore that ring for 11 years. And before her wedding, Franny took that ring to the jewelers and, he, and she had him melt it down and actually put it inside her husband's wedding ring as a band of gold. That's an integral part of his ring that can't be separated. And it's a constant reminder how she was faithful to wait for him. Yeah, I like that because that boundary is um, basically he, her dad is the protector of her heart in her purity. And that's the boundary. And, um, and girls know that also about, you know, my husband and, um, and actually my husband is also very, um, he's a quiet guy, you know? So if there's a listener listening, who's thinking, well, my husband, I just can't see him doing that. And, you know, my husband's a quiet guy and obviously I'm a talker, but he, he just gets right involved. He really stepped it up for his girls. Like he takes that seriously. That's a boundary. And he is the, um, mediator, you know, when it comes to boys and relationships and he speaks to the boys or, and, um, there's this respect level I see to all the guys that are friends with my daughters because they know that this exists in the McCarthy home. And it's kind of neat, you know, my girls know that exists. So um, I, I feel like that's taken a lot of the fear and maybe even the temptation out of the relationships and the feelings, these, you know, hormones and things that my girls specifically my girls and guy and the guys in our family may have towards the opposite sex, because there's already this boundary of human existence, um, looking out for them or keeping them from, you know, these awkward situations. But this is one of those transitions that we like to prepare for ahead of time. We discuss what a good dating age is. And we, we try to teach our kids what a really good solid, solid, friendship with the opposite sex looks like and to encourage them that that is possible because not every guy has to be um a sexual awkward relationship and i want my my girls have had strong friendships with the opposite sex and also when those natural attractions do happen and I, and i see them happening now and um in my you know young teen girls um, we have discussions that come up and sometimes I have to prompt the question sweetly or kindly. Sometimes their older siblings kind of tease them, which, you know, some people might say, well, you know, teasing might be inappropriate, but it's a healthy teasing kind of brings them out of their shell. You know, do you like so-and-so, or I think you like so-and-so, and then you can kind of see, kind of gauge where they are in their feelings and emotions and give them room to talk about it. Um, but recently I wanted to share this little story. One of my teens came to me. I noticed she was very upset and very fraught, you know, like with emotion for a couple of days. And, um, she's a young teen and I didn't know what was going on. You know, I've raised a lot of kids, but this was a new experience and she has a hard time with her words. So if you have a child that's very private, has a hard time with their words, which obviously I don't understand. I thought, you know, <laughs> what is this? So finally one night I called her in 
And she said, I'm just, she was so, so upset. And she said, I haven't been sleeping at all. And I said, what, what is wrong? And she had actually been fighting the feelings of attraction to another young boy in fear that it was wrong and that those feelings weren't okay. And that she might get in trouble for feeling that way towards another boy. And, you know, I thought about this for a long time because I've already raised quite a few daughters and I realized I actually missed having some of those conversations with her before she started having those feelings and saying, you're going to have these feelings. It's going to be normal. It's not always a bad thing. Um, so what we did is we took a step back and I had some great talks with her to alleviate her fears and said, these are normal feelings. And we continue to do some healthy thinking about what is normal what's not normal, and then to actually put boundaries on our thoughts and our conversations and our actions, because I think she was misrepresenting what a feeling was with it being bad and what that feeling might mean. Um, am I too young? Am I too young to have these feelings? Is it wrong? Should I not feel this way about a boy? Um, can't we just stay friends? I don't know if I want to feel this way. Like these are all normal things, young teenagers think. And so I, I feel like some healthy boundaries to answer, you know, the initial question would be to have a good, you know, if you don't have a father figure for your kids in the home, then even as a mom, you have the ability to represent that interim mode between your son and, and another girl or your girl and another son, but watching their phones and their texting, a lot of the apps and things that they can share with other people, um, social media in our home, we don't have social media in, until they're 16 for not just because of what they're going to post, but because what they're going to see, but also it's another modes of communication that can be erased. Um, who they hang out with alone time. You know, our girls don't spend alone time with the opposite sex. Even if we have people at our home, there's this general rule. Everyone's in the common area or outside where everyone can see each other. No one's in rooms alone. Um, it, you know, who, who are they spending time with? And really number one is just don't make it awkward. You know, like I said, with my young teenage girl, like, I don't want her to feel like this is a bad thing. Um, and to tell her this is normal. Yeah. He's a cute guy. I want her to know that I think he's cute, you know, and I'm happy for her that she has these feelings because these feelings are normal. Um, but what are we going to do with that? And how are we going to handle this? And how are you still going to be friends with them without it being awkward? Um, I actually enjoy doing this process with my, my kids because they're asking me, right? And that's what we want them to do. We want them to come to us. Yeah. I think it's so important, September, to acknowledge that the attraction is there and that it's not necessarily wrong. God designed us to be attracted to the opposite sex, to find them physically attractive. And in squelching that or making that seem like a sin, that attraction is sin, you're sort of directing the, the blame and shame where it shouldn't be. The attraction isn't sin. Now, you have to be careful. They have to be careful to guard themselves from temptation, the temptation of that attraction, because that could lead to sin, but the attraction isn't sin. So I think it's great to have those conversations. I encourage my teens to spend time with members of the opposite sex, but in groups, you know, to hang out as friends with accountability, like here at my house or at youth group, because that allows them to begin to learn how to interact in a healthy way 
with the opposite sex without the pressure of sexual temptation, but I don't allow them to be alone with someone from the opposite sex. So like September, you know, they have to be in common public places um, with others there present. And we've talked about this a little bit in, in an episode, previous episode about cell phone use. My daughter is now 16, so she, she has been given permission to text back and forth between her and a member of the opposite sex. She has some friends who are guys, but with the caveat that her phone is linked to my husband's. So every single text, no matter who it's from, that she receives also goes to his phone. And that really holds some accountability. And those those young boys are told, you know, everything you write to me, you're also writing to my dad. So that really helps to keep the conversation appropriate. You know, she has one friend that, you know, they text back and forth scripture verses and encouragement and, and prayers because they're good friends. And that's really helping her um, form proper context for a relationship with the opposite sex without having the pressure of sexuality and all the other things that go along with that. What about when kids encounter another teen who maybe is sexually aggressive, like in the case of a boy coming on too strong to your daughter or um, even a girl who sends an inappropriate text or maybe a picture to your son, what is your course of action there? How can you help your son or daughter without embarrassing them or make them feel like they did something wrong, but still helping them form appropriate boundaries and, and figuring out how to deal with this aggressive sexual behavior, even if it's not them, even if it's the other person. Well, we never experienced anything like that when Franny was young um, because, you know, it was a different era. Life was a bit easier 20 years ago before social media was so rampant. But I would advise them to delete that image immediately as it's illegal, I believe, in every state. Sexting is serious, and if you're discovered, you're going to face the juvenile justice system. If you're over 18, you'll be considered a sex offender, so it's a serious deal. And I would tell my son or daughter to cut ties with that boy or girl, delete them from their social media and friends lists. I mean, I, I would be very serious about this and take serious action. Delete any pictures or messages they sent, and then I would say pray for them. I mean, Really, that's about all you can do and report them. You know, you need to let your parents know um, if it's, I, I, I don't know if you would report them to the school authorities or, or what, but, but find out who to report them to and report them because that is just not cool to their parents, maybe to the church or the school. I'm not sure exactly who you would report them to, but they need to be held accountable for sending stuff like that to your children. Yeah, we have um, one preemptive action, and then we have one current step of action. And the preemptive action is we have conversations and ask questions and give our kids words and actions to respond ahead of time. So it would be, we've taught our kids to say this, I am not comfortable with this. I want you to stop, or this is inappropriate and I'm not okay with this. So those are the preemptive things. Like I've taught my kids this verbiage and that way they're in control. They're not asking, they're not pleading. They're just saying it. And then they remove themselves if possible or the text or blocking, like you said, but the current state of action. And we've had to, we've had to deal with this is um, we just go straight to the parents. We go straight to the parents of this other person, this other teen who may be aggressive or inappropriate. And that usually is the end of it. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think sometimes um, some of that will take care of itself when you train your kids in purity. And, and, and I don't want this to come across as victim shaming. There, it, it's not necessarily your child's fault that they're receiving this aggressive behavior. I'm not saying that, but I, I am saying, you know, there's this old saying that says, don't look for the right one, be the right one, and you'll attract the right one. And, and I know that that's kind of cliche, and it's obviously a gross generalization, but I think there is an element of truth to it. Um, my teens haven't experienced sexual aggressive behavior from other teens, but I think in part because they're not sexually aggressive. You know, they they put out um, a different, you know, feel or vibe. They're not um, hanging around kids that would be that way. They don't put out those, those um, messages themselves. And I think a lot of that takes care of itself when, when you have a teen that is like Franny, you know, um, committed to sexual purity, committed to personal holiness, you know, she's going to attract somebody who is as well. So what are some of your favorite resources for teaching um, about the clinical facts about reproduction and sex, as well as maybe a moral framework of purity and abstinence? Um, just to name a few, uh, we've used a lot of Dana Gresh books, um, which are huge. There's a lot, a nice assortment, um, focus on the family has some really great resources, actually answers in Genesis, especially when it comes to anatomy and like physiology and reproduction, things like that. We use passport to purity from family life based in Arkansas. And so those are some of the really formative, like if I could just think off the top of my head, things that I've used very routinely in raising our 10 kids. We're talking about sexual purity and um, even the clinical aspect. I echo the Dana Gresh. I think all of her materials are excellent and so biblically solid and, and written in such a way that's really appealing to especially young tween girls, teen girls. Excellent resource. I would add the talks, a parent's guide to critical conversations about sex dating and other unmentionables by Barrett and Jennifer Johnson. That's obviously a resource just for parents, but it's an excellent book to help parents navigate those tween, teen and young adult years of parenting in a very sexual world. I love the author's position on sex and relationships and, and even the list of questions that they provide to determine if someone is the person you should marry. I think that alone, that list alone is worth the price of admission of that. That book. Um, and then when my boys get to be about nine or 10, I introduce them to the book called Guy Stuff, The Body Book for Boys by Karen Natterson. This is a book that's written under the publication umbrella of American Girl Books. So it's not a Christian resource, but um, it lacks the like toilet humor and crude innuendos that a lot of those, you know, boys growing up body change books have that grossology is what I call it. Um, it lacks all of that. It's very clinical. It's a very rare exception in boys body change books. Um, it mostly just addresses the clinical side of purity. And it the the key is that it doesn't oppose a Christian worldview. 
because it is just very clinical. You know, it's like a how, how to care and keep your body for a young boy. And then for girls, I really like the Care and Keeping of You series. It's a two-part series. The first book covers um, topics for younger girls. Again, it's not written from a Christian's perspective, but it's an excellent resource for introducing, you know, physical changes and basic hygiene for girls as young as eight. And then the second book um, is more designed for older tweens and teens. It's It addresses really specific body and emotional changes of girls 10 and older. You have to know that there's some mildly graphic illustrations and diagrams in both of those books in the series to just detail female body parts and the ins and outs of the menstrual cycle. So none of the images are inappropriate, but it's not a book you just want lying around your house for younger kids to happen to stumble upon. And then um, lastly, I really recommend the Learning About Sex series from Concordia Publishing. It's a gender-specific series of books that starts at ages four to six, and there's like five or six in each of the tracks. There's one for boys and one for girls, um, but they grow with your child. So at first, they're just learning, you know, what, what makes boys and girls different, and then you move on to, you know, how babies are made, and then um, it progresses into conversations about sex and about purity and about God's design for sex as your as your kids get older into the teen years. So it's an excellent resource. Jamie, will you put links to these in the show notes? Absolutely. If you're looking for all of these, you don't have to scramble for a pen and write them down. We will be sure to put all of these links and anything we mentioned today in the podcast in the show notes at momtomompodcast.com. So in our current culture, children are just inundated with twisted messages about sex and sexuality from billboards along the highway showing really scantily clad models to, you know, the magazine rack at the grocery store declaring all kinds of sexually explicit headlines. Sex is an unavoidable topic. And, And while we can really feel pressed by the weight of helping our kids swim up the cultural tide, we don't have to feel overwhelmed. The talk, quote unquote talk, doesn't have to be awkward. It only becomes uncomfortable when we ignore it. So we encourage you to talk early, talk often, and create an ongoing conversation that continues to just peel back the layers at age-appropriate times in order to help steer your child towards a healthy view of biblical sexuality. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope this has been a really helpful discussion. We'd love to continue chatting over on Facebook or Instagram. Join us over there and tell us all about your own experiences in having the talks with your kids, what has worked and maybe what hasn't. And as always, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or review. It takes less than two minutes and is just a really great way to spread the word about the podcast to other moms who could use some encouragement.